You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. To return to Genesis 50, Genesis 50, we're going to begin reading in verse 15, and we'll read through verse 21. Genesis 50, verses 15 And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure or perhaps or might hate us and will certainly requit us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. For they did unto thee evil, and now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him, and his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? For as you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Now, therefore, fear ye not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning and we ask that, Lord, you would be pleased to teach us from your word. And in the process, Father, speak to our hearts. Speak to us, O Father, your word, which is truth. May we hear your voice in it. Well, Father, encourage us. Some of us this morning may need encouragement. Father, reprove us. Maybe, maybe sometimes we need reproof from. Undoubtedly, this is true. But, oh, Father, fill our hearts with the love of Christ this morning. Fill our hearts, oh, Father, with your gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, once upon a time, there was no coronavirus. <laughs> that seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? I mean, it really wasn't, but doesn't it? See, I mean, um, Sometime this week, I was sitting in my study with a blank sheet of paper thinking, I'm going to need to get some words on this sheet of paper by Sunday. And I didn't really have anything. And I thought, you know what? Once upon a time, there was no coronavirus. Oh, Rick, that's so profound. Write it down so you don't forget it. Um, all kidding aside, um, it seems like it was a long time ago. I mean, 9-11 brought significant changes, but I wonder if anyone has begun to compare the changes that this coronavirus has brought to our lives, and, uh, or compared it to 9-11, if you will. And I, maybe it's a little bit early to be doing some formal comparisons. I don't know, but I'm thinking that the coronavirus has brought many more significant changes uh, to our lives than 9-11 than did. Um, some of us can remember quite well what life was like before 9-11. I don't know if you ever think about that or not. I mean, it was really different, wasn't it? I mean, it's so different. Then comes 9-11. Then comes the coronavirus. Um, I was thinking also, you know, our little ones, many of our little ones here are never really going to know what life was like prior to this coronavirus epidemic, will they? Um, well, it is what it is. We've been through epidemics before, but we were healthier, we were more mature, we were far better grounded in the truth. And with that statement, I'm not saying that America was all Christian at any point in her history, but what I would say is the average American knew a lot more about the Scriptures than they do today. And just by virtue of that, we're much more grounded, much more mature. 
and in a far better place to be able to handle this. Today, we're not grounded in anything. And this really renders us very unstable, as we see everywhere, as we turn on the news. And Of course, it's in many folks' best interest to keep that all stirred up. Don't spend a lot of time watching that. We only need to watch about a half an hour of anything on TV to get the scoop on what's going on in the world. Nothing more than that. After that, turn it off. Just turn it off. Uh, it's not serving our interests or anyone else's. Um, but it seems like the world's coming off its wheels, like people are coming off their wheels. I mean, at Christmas time, would anyone have foreseen all of this? Who would have predicted the riots and the looting? And who would have predicted that an area of Seattle would have said, you know what, we're autonomous. This is, this is no longer a part of the United States. I was listening to a theologian who also does a lot of social thinking and commentating on social thought, and I like what he said in response to that. He said, you know, it's kind of what teenagers do sometimes when they're all fed up and spoiled rotten. They declare their bedrooms to be autonomous from the rest of the house. In the meantime, where do they get their heat? Where do they get their air conditioning? Where, where's their roof coming from? Where's their shelter? Where are the clothes on their backs? Where's the food in their bellies? It's ridiculous. It's immature. It won't last. It, it certainly won't last. But it seems like people are just coming off the, off the rails. And we can ask ourselves, what's going on? I mean, why are so many people coming off the rails like this? Well, here's a good place to start. Guilt cuts very deep. It's kind of a nebulous statement. Guilt cuts very deep. I'm going to spend the next half an hour or so explaining what I mean by that. Guilt cuts very deep. Let us never underestimate the effect or the effects of sin in our lives. These wounds are deep, and the remedies that are frequently administered to heal these wounds are insufficient, miserably insufficient to heal. You cannot find healing apart from Christ Jesus. You cannot find healing apart from Christ. That's, that's, that's just a fact of the world. It's a fact of the, it's a fact of the cosmos. It's a fact of creation. Yet there's an entire cottage industry, and a very profitable one, I might add, that seeks and attempts to heal without Jesus. Modern counseling attempts to bring healing without Christ. Modern therapy attempts to achieve sobriety without Christ. Modern man attempts to find meaning, purpose, and fulfillment without Christ. And in fact, most everything that goes on goes on as if Jesus doesn't exist or never has existed at all. And yet, the sign along the road says, God bless America. Another Ridiculous statement. <laughs> Ridiculous. And these efforts, they're just band-aids over life-threatening wounds. Many of you are in the healthcare. I'm not I'm not in the health I'm not in the healthcare profession per se, but one thing I know is that if you've got a major wound, a band-aid may offer you a little bit of help. Maybe a little bit of help. But it's no cure. You know, the hemorrhaging is still going on underneath the Band-Aid. Infection still goes on under the Band-Aid. The Band-Aid has no, no effect on the infection. Am I right? And then the temperature rises. What, is the band what can a Band-Aid do for a temperature? You know, it's, it's like throwing rocks at the moon. Just like chucking rocks at the moon. Now, once upon a time, there was no coronavirus. It seems like a long time ago. It wasn't, but it seems like it. And before the coronavirus intruded in our lives, you remember we were studying Genesis. You guys remember that? Seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? And I've been wanting to get back to Genesis, uh, back to Genesis uh, and finish up. We started, as you recall, we started in Genesis 3 and we worked our way, you know, really verse by verse, all the way to Genesis 50, and then we really had to take a break from it. I think you know, really only two messages away from finishing things up and 
That's when we took our break a few months ago, and we've not been able to get back to it. And as I'd promised, Genesis 1 and 2, we skipped. We skipped it on purpose. The reason being is I want to put a whole study together on creation, and I, I want to do it for everyone's benefit, of course, for all of our mutual edification, but especially for our youngsters as they begin to grow up. They're going to go off to college. They're going to go off to university, and they're going to be confronted with the things that I've just introduced this message with, so we need to prepare them for that. And uh, a good study in Genesis 1 and 2 will do just that. But we left off last time uh, with the death of Jacob. And some of you recall that I had mentioned that um, Jacob's death narrative is unique in the respect that there's a lot of material devoted to it, isn't there? You know, when we, when we uh, were looking at the life of Abraham, when it came to the end, uh, no, not much more than a few paragraphs were devoted to Abraham's death, even less devoted to Isaac's death. But when we get to Jacob, uh, here we see quite a bit of material devoted to the last days and even the last hours of his life. If you look back with me to chapter 47 and verse 20, Chapter 47 and verse 20 is a mile marker, and it's informing us as we read through of a change, of a new area of focus. We read the words, and the time drew near that Israel, that is Jacob, his name Israel and Jacob have been toggled back and forth. There's theological significance to that, as we've pointed out as we went along. And the time drew near that Israel must die. And then the entire chapter 48 is a record of Joseph's visit with his father Jacob. And he brings his sons Manasseh and Ephraim along. And in this chapter, Jacob blesses them. And when the time for Jacob's death draws near, Jacob calls for his sons. If you look at chapter 49 and verse 1, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you. In the last days, verse 1, 49, chapter 49, verse 1. And if you look at the last verse in this chapter, verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And that brings us to chapter 50, first 14 verse, verses concern the burial of Jacob, Joseph, his brothers, and Numerous members of Pharaoh's household traveled to Canaan in order to bury Jacob. If you look at verse 9, you see this is no small entourage. There went up with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a great company. Verse 10, they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan. And there they mourned with a great and very sore lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. Skipping to verse 12, and his sons did to him according as he commanded them. For his sons carried him in the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which Abraham bought uh, from Ephraim, or Ephron, Hittite, there before Mamre. And Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brethren, and all that went up with him to bury his father. And after he had buried his father, they returned. And um, this brings us to our text this morning, to verse 15. Everyone has returned to Egypt. Uh, Joseph is back to his post, and uh, his brothers are back in the land of Goshen. And we come to verse 14. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will perhaps hate us and will certainly requit us all the evil which we did to him. Now, we can ask ourselves this question, what is going on here? What's, what's going on here in verse 15? Well, now that their father is gone, the brothers begin to get insecure, don't they? They begin to become afraid. And we might ask, well, afraid of what? Well, afraid that Joseph will turn on them now that their father is gone. Well, we'll turn on them for what? Well, for the evil that they did to Joseph. What evil? Well, many of you know the story quite well, especially those of you who have been through this study. Joseph's brothers roughed him up out of fierce jealousy, threw him into a pit, deliberated seriously of murdering him, only at the last minute at the sight of a, of a band of Ishmaelites. 
Well, they decided to sell him, so they sold him into slavery. There he was carried off into Egypt and through further injustice was put in prison. And while in prison, he came in contact with two of Pharaoh's officials. Given the ability by God to interpret a couple of dreams, uh, Joseph later finds himself in audience with Pharaoh, who is the most powerful man in the world at that time. Pharaoh is so impressed with him that he exalts Joseph out of prison to second in command of all of Egypt. And then comes the famine. And um, this brings and causes Joseph's brothers to come to Egypt to buy food. And there they're reunited with Joseph. And, and we studied those passages. We studied those visits where his brothers visit with, they, they meet with Joseph. They don't even know that they're in front of their brother. And we studied those. We looked at those very closely. Some of you will recall and, uh, you know, uh, Joseph very masterfully pastors his and leads his, uh, uh, his brothers to repentance and leads them to reconciliation. And we have seen furthermore that this reconciliation was real. It's real. This reconciliation was real. And, and the, the, the repentance we've seen uh, was indeed Real. Their hearts were truly united. But now their father is gone, and the brothers begin to get insecure. Fear overtakes them. They begin to believe Joseph's kindness was only for their father. So in verse 16, they send a message to Joseph, reading on, Your father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say to Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did to thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. Now, we have to wonder at this point. I mean, if you're like me, when you read this, you, you're wondering. Did Jacob really give this command? Did he really tell his sons to say to Joseph, listen, you're suppo I command you to forgive your brothers. I mean, did he really, did he really do this? I mean, if he did... Oh, I mean, Jacob has had opportunities to bring this up himself. He could have brought it up at any time in chapter 48. He was with Joseph. Well, someone may say, well, but in chapter 48, yes, he's with Joseph, but Manasseh and Ephraim are there. Well, I simply ask him, listen, you guys go outside for a minute. I want to talk to your father. Joseph, you know about your brothers. They have sinned against you greatly, but I beg you, forgive them. Been easy enough to do it in chapter 48. But what about chapter 49? You would almost expect it in chapter 49. We went through that with some detail. We studied that chapter. We spent several weeks on chapter 49. And uh, Jacob doesn't hold back in calling Reuben on his sin, does he? Nor does he hold back in calling uh, Simeon and Levi uh, on their sin. So, but he never mentions this. He, he never mentions this. I don't know if we can know for sure, but it appears to me to be what Calvin called a frivolous invention. A frivolous invention. And Calvin goes on to say, for the Lord suffers them to act like children. Isn't that interesting? He didn't. I'll read it again. Calvin in the 1500s said, for the Lord suffers them to act like children. Act like children. Guilt cuts very deep. Guilt cuts very deep. The message continues. Let's look at it again. So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. I'm reading this in the King James. Right there, I'm reading in the King James. Some of the, some of the, you'll notice some of the translations are my own this morning. But I'm reading this verse in the King James translation. And I'm doing that because the King James really brings out the interrogatives here. Notice it says, forgive, I pray thee now. And we pray thee. Notice that plea. It's brought out more forcefully. The New American Standard does the same thing. It, for it, it translates it, please forgive, I beg you. 
There's, a, there's an interrogative here in the Hebrew, nasana, nasana. It's, it's, it's a strong, it's, there's a lot of strength to that phrase. Where this is, it's literally, it could be translated, I beseech you, please forgive, or I beseech you, forgive, please. Or we pray thee, forgive, as the King James renders it. And what we're to see here, very obviously, what we're to see here, what Moses is showing us, the author of Genesis, what Moses is showing us is this is no pretended plea here. It may be a frivolous invention on the part of the brothers, but this is no pretended plea. As the old uh, preachers would say, this is no feigned plea for forgiveness. Continuing in verse 17, and Joseph wept when they spake unto him. Joseph's tears were undoubtedly a combination of the distress that he sees his brothers in, but also the fact that they had so little trust in his sincerity. So little trust in his sincerity. I mean, Joseph's been providing for them now for like 20 years. Their every need for 20 years. And here he sees the issue is not over. Guilt cuts deep. Now, at some point in all this, Joseph's brothers come to him, verse 18, tells us that they fell down before his face and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. John Gill remarks they were content to be Joseph's servants. Would he but forgive their sin? I'll read it to you again. They were content to be Joseph's servants. Would he but forgive their sin? And here we see one of the marks of saving faith, don't we? This is one of the marks. This is in type. What's being extended towards Joseph is in type or shadow of what we're to extend to Christ. Notice their faces are down and they're proclaiming, we be thy servants. One of the first things that the Holy Spirit does in the heart of a person that he is about to convert is he convicts us of sin. You know, so many, now for a couple of generations, that has been skipped in the church. Lots of people have, have made professions of faith. And uh, whether these professions of faith are genuine or not, who's, only the Lord knows. But this part has been skipped. This conviction of, skin, of sin stuff has been skipped. The Holy Spirit doesn't skip that. The intensity of that conviction may vary. Don't worry about the intensity of that conviction. But that conviction should be present. For Jesus says, when the helper comes, he will convict the world of sin. The helper, the paraclete, Christ, the, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict. Without that conviction, and we'll see in a few minutes here a little more about that, but about that conviction... We have to see that we've all broken God's commandments. We have to see that we're lawbreakers. And we, and we see that one day we have to go before God. One day we are going to have to go before God and give an account of our entire lives, word, thought, and deed. And we see plainly we're guilty. We cannot stand in God's court. And once these convictions fill our hearts, I mean, the forgiveness of sin becomes the most important thing. Well, the problem is forgiveness of sin is far I'm not even sure it's in the top five of the most important things, is it? But it becomes the most important thing to Joseph's brothers, doesn't it? They're on their face. Pardon. Pardon us, Joseph. We, will, we are your servants. Now, how much more should this be our response to Christ Jesus? given the fact that Jesus didn't send somebody to go to the cross in our place. He didn't say, here, I want, I want this angel to go and suffer a penalty on the cross. An angel couldn't do it. An angel wouldn't be able to do it. An angel's not a member of the human race. It would be insufficient. It wouldn't provide atonement. No, the Father comes in the person of Christ, or the, the Son, rather, comes in the person of Christ. The Father sends him. So that he can do what? So that he can go to the cross personally in our place, suffering the penalty for our sins. And given this, how much more should we be on our faces before Christ in terms of our sin debt? 
And here we see Joseph's brothers. They fall down on their face before Joseph. Notice how Joseph responds in verse 19. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? That's cryptic to us. You know, sin, sin covers our eyes, you know. It's almost like you, you know, like you get your glasses all smeared up and you can't see very well. And when your glasses are smeared up and the sun hits them in a certain way, you, you, you can't see. Sin's got our hearts all smeared up and we can't see you know, because of it. And we come to verses like that and we think to ourselves, what, a, what in the world does this mean? Joseph says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? What exactly does he mean? Well, for starters, Joseph is ex displaying amazing humility. And this is breathtaking humil humility. I mean, he is a really powerful man. In my notes here, I write this sentence, there are few people in the world today who are in possession of as much power as Joseph was. But since I've written that, I've thought about that further. And I don't think that there is anyone in the world today who has as much power as Joseph had. The reason I say that is because Pharaoh was a king. And there is no kingdom that is a superpower that has exalted itself over the entire world. Perhaps China is on its way to being that very kingdom. Don't know. But Pharaoh was. That was the position Pharaoh had at that point in time in world history. And Pharaoh had made Joseph guru number two. He was second in command. And here we, we, we see such amazing humility. Why? Because Joseph doesn't cross the boundary. Now, some would say, well, boundary. Well, well, this is humility. First of all, humility is not crossing the boundary. Humility is not putting yourself down. Humility is recognizing where you belong. It's recognizing the boundaries and not transgressing or, trans, or trespassing those, those boundaries. Let me flesh this out. When I say Joseph never crosses the boundary, here's what I mean. Joseph, as verse 20 makes it very clear, he is aware of God's program. Look what he says. He says, as for you, ye meant evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. All right, Joseph is aware of the program. He is aware of God's sovereign purposes in this. His purpose in this is to do good. God meant it unto good. Now, if God has his hand in this for the good, and let's, let's expand on that a little bit, because this is not just good in general to all human beings who were alive at that time and caught in the famine. But this is good, especially concerning his covenant, those who are in covenant with him, or we could say his church, of whom Jacob is a patriarch. In fact, in this strict sense, he's the last patriarch. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And I, as I said in earlier studies, I think that's why there's so much time spent on uh, the death of Jacob, because this is the end of that particular era, if you will. Uh, after that, the focus now is going to begin to be on the, the various tribes. It'll especially begin to focus on the tribe of Judah, doesn't it? But here, Joseph, he is aware of God's program, and he's, he's aware that God's program is to do good, but he's even more astute than that. He realizes that this good that God is doing here is specific it's, it's covenant faithfulness. It's good to his father. It's good to his family. It's good to his people. And all of the covenant promises that Joseph has been living by, he realizes that this is all part of the plan. Now, if God is in this to bring his covenant promises to fruition, how can Joseph usurp the judgment seat of God that belongs only to the Lord and retaliate against his brothers? That would be to cross a boundary. It belongs only to the Lord. Now, the brothers are on their face in front of Joseph, and Joseph knows he must too be on his face, but not before his brothers, but before his Lord. And you cannot be on your face before God in servitude while you're in a spirit of retaliation. Just can't do it. You're going to be in one or the other. 
but you can't be in both. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense, says the Lord. The Apostle Paul teaches us the same thing at Romans 12, which we just read earlier in our service. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath. I love that phrase right there. Give place unto wrath. It's, like, it's a kind of a metaphorical, kind of put in a spatial element here. You know, a place, space. And you don't belong in that space. That's God's space. There's a boundary. Don't cross it. Humility is not crossing it. How easy it is for us to cross that place. All it takes is one little episode out there at a stop sign somewhere, and we cross that place, don't we? So easily. But when we do that, what does that teach us? It teaches us how superficial our love is for our fellow man, doesn't it? It teaches us how superficial our love is. Here we see on Joseph's part an incredible act of humility. Powerful men are almost never humble, but look at Joseph. But also, also, Joseph is in tune with God's plan. He wants to be a productive member of God's plan. Retaliating against his brothers would be the very opposite of what he's being called to do. I have a quote here from John Calvin, another one. So helpful. He writes, quote, Seeing that by the secret counsel of God, Joseph was led into Egypt for the purpose of preserving life of his brothers. Let me read that to you again. Seeing that by the secret counsel of God, Joseph was led into Egypt for the purpose of preserving the life of his brethren. He must devote himself to this object, lest he should resist God. Okay, so he's been, he's been part of God's plan in order to do good to his brothers. So he must get with the program and be part of this program. Otherwise, he is resisting God, right? Calvin continues, he says, in fact, by his action, that since God has deposited your life with me, I should be engaged in war against him if I were not to be the faithful dispenser of the grace which he had committed to my hands. In other words, if, Je if, if Joseph were to retaliate against his brothers, he would actually be declaring war against God because he would be doing the very opposite of which God has called him to do. God has put at Joseph's fingertips a huge treasure chest of grace. And it is that treasure out of that treasure chest of grace that Joseph is to dispense to his brother. Joseph understands his assignment and he understands the tremendous grace and, and this, I think, is what largely moves Joseph to tears when his brothers come to him. It's because he realizes his brothers still don't get this. They, they still don't get it. Um, verse 21, Joseph comforts his brothers. He says, now, therefore, don't be afraid. I'm going to nourish you and your little ones. And he speaks kindly to them and he comforts them. Now, with this brief explanation behind us. Let me, let me offer a couple points of reflection here that I think are helpful. First, in the overarching theme, that I, the message I really want to get across this morning is that guilt cuts very deep. It cuts very deep. And life events can pick off the scab. Life events can often pick up the scab. We can think it's all healed and it's all better and then a life event comes along. This is one of the reasons we act the way we do in times of stress. I mean, Joseph's brothers are cruising along. I figure they're, they're acting like all is fine. Then their father gets sick and then he passes away. And then what happens? Well, then insecurity begins to settle in. There are two things that bring family dysfunction to the surface like nothing else can. One is a death in the family and two is a wedding. As a minister of the gospel, I've seen this over and over and over again. Sometimes the weddings actually are worse than the death in the family. They can, they're supposed to be joyous occasions, but I'm going to tell you something. They can be absolutely miserable. You say, you're not supposed to say that. I didn't say that. You didn't hear that. You know, take, just erase it. I'm, I'm, I'm being playful here, but I remember an older pastor telling me, hey, wait until you start doing weddings. Okay, I thought, wow, should he said that to me? 
Then I started doing weddings. And all I could think about was what he said. Everybody gets all wound up most of the time for the wrong reasons. Most of it's vanity and pride. And um, here comes the dysfunction. Comes up to the surface. Comes up to the surface. I mean, if you talk to the wrong person, you say the wrong, something to the wrong person, you could be tripping over something that's in the family you know nothing about. Next thing you know, you're, they're all sore at you. Oh, man, it's uh, enough about that. But the fact is we sin against family members, and they don't handle it like Joseph does. And they sin against us, and we don't handle it like Joseph does. And none of us certainly handle it like Jesus does. And this creates bitterness. It creates resentment. It, cre- it creates this little justification mechanism to go off. We can justify retaliating, and it re- creates withdrawal and anger, and then life goes on, and we just bury ourselves in something else, acting like nothing has ever happened, and a tragedy happens, and all the things come to the surface. And there we are. Guilt cuts very deep. The fact is, sinning is not a small matter. It's not a small matter to sin against the sovereign creator of the universe. I mean, we conduct our lives like it's no big deal. We act like it's a small matter, but it leaves us in a wretched condition. You know, let's think. Some of you who were around when we started the study in Genesis, we began in Genesis 3, and we saw Adam and Eve prior to the fall. And then we saw what happened to them after they rebelled against God, and the, the, the effects were not small. They enjoyed God's company. They went from enjoying each other. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man, says, uh, says Adam. He goes from that and enjoying God's company to hiding from God. And they hide from each other. And they're making up excuses. And they're blame-shifting. And they're completely consumed with themselves. If you think that's a small thing, actually it's huge. This is the effect that sin has on our life. Guilt cuts very deep. I mean, if we understood how deep guilt cuts in our hearts, in our emotions, in our minds, in our will, in our affections, we would not come forward with these silly remedies that we come forward with. I mean, the fact that we come forward with these silly remedies, that we would try to heal this without Jesus, teaches us we have no idea what we're even trying to accomplish. We have no idea of the significance of the problem. Anyone who tries to heal you without Jesus is simply unqualified for the task that's at hand. They're unqualified. Their their desire to do this without Jesus disqualifies them from being uh, any true help. I'm not saying that they can't be temporal help. There's temporal gains that can be gained. But what good is that? A Band-Aid is too. It offers some help. These superficial remedies. If our story teaches us anything, it teaches us that, well, that where true gospel healing can be found, I mean, it teaches us where, where and only where it can be found. It can only be found in the promises of God, which all find their fulfillment of Christ. I mean, the sad thing is most people will skate through life not even realizing, not even realizing all this until they go through the doorway, and there they are before the Lord, and they have to give an account for their entire lives against the straight edge of God's holy perfection. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. And if we understood this, if we believed this, we would be coming to Jesus in droves. That's what happens in times of revival, by the way. This is the Holy Spirit brings that to bear in the hearts and consciences of people. And they come to Jesus in droves. Secondly, forgiveness must be rooted in God alone through Christ. Joseph has an enormous lesson for us in this text. He's offered true forgiveness. We want to ask ourselves, how does he do it? Joseph, how do you do it? How do you truly forgive your brothers the way you've truly forgiven? I mean, forgiveness isn't easy. Has anybody ever tried that? I hope we've all tried it. Forgiveness. I don't want to forgive. I want to even the score. Isn't that what our flesh says when someone has wronged us? It's not easy, is it? Joseph, look. Look what he does. How does he do it? 
Verse 20 is the answer. Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. How does Joseph offer true forgiveness? By looking past what his brothers thought and meant with their wicked deeds and then becoming consumed, consumed with God's intentions for the same. Joseph's not on his brother's program. He's on God's program. His life is not marching to the beat of this world. His life is marching to the beat of Christ. It rises him above it. His thoughts are only on what God is doing. By looking past what his brothers meant in their wicked act and becoming consumed by what God meant in it, this liberates Joseph's mind from bitterness to being able to explore the Lord's role and vision and purpose and goal and what has happened. And very often, after a believer has come through a really difficult time, very, very often, they will say something like this, that was hard. I don't want to do it again. But I can see now, God had a great purpose in it. And I'm so thankful for that purpose that it's made every moment of that suffering worthwhile. Well, some of us have probably said that. If you haven't said that, if you're walking with Christ Jesus, you will say that one day. You will say that one day. But what Joseph has been able to do, he's been, he's been able to bring that into the present tense. To see God's purpose. To see what God is doing. And to trust that that is so good that it's going to make this temporary suffering the same as though it was nothing. That's where Joseph is at. That's where Joseph is at. Now, if you've gone through these tough times, and I know some of you have, I think the lesson we can take out of Joseph's book is to take what we've learned from his past experiences and import them into our present circumstances. To import them. God has been faithful to us every step of the way through everything that we've been through in our lives of serving Him. And God will be with us now. And as He causes us to roll and tumble through this particular situation, whatever it might be, let's embrace with joy the fact that He is going to bring things to the surface in our lives. He's going to bring things to the surface in our hearts that we thought maybe were behind us. That is what happens to the brothers, isn't it? I really think that um, a year prior to Jacob's death, they probably thought this was all behind them. But then comes this situation, a death in the family. And it brings these insecurities and these fears. It brings the fact that it isn't really over yet to the surface so that it now can be dealt with finally and forever. Suffering is involved in that. It's almost like going through a medical procedure where, you know, you have to go under the knife or you have to... You have to go through some very uncomfortable procedure, but the end result of the procedure turns out to, to make the suffering of the procedure worthwhile. You see, when, when, we're in, when we're going through these medical procedures, we really don't know what the outcome is going to be like, but when we're going through these procedures in God's hands, we do know what the outline, what the outcome is going to be like. If you're in Christ, the outcome is going to be positive and perfect every time without miss. Third point is humility. Joseph could never offer true forgiveness until he had reached a certain level of humility. I mean, a person who is humble is a person who knows and understands his boundaries and refuses to cross them. 
So much of the time, what is our problem? Our problem in handling sin is pride. It's pride. It's just good old-fashioned pride, isn't it? A lot of dis- family dysfunction is just pride. It's been my experience over the last 20 years of helping people, family dysfunction, and wrestling with my own family dysfunction. So much of the time, it's pride, isn't it? So much of the time, it's pride. I want to run my life my way. If I say that, if I think that, I've crossed a boundary. I've usurped God's throne. Humility exists when I want God to run my life His way. His way. Humility exists when I see myself as a servant. Humility exists when I'm face down before the Lord saying, I am your servant. And by the way, freedom actually begins to happen when we're there. We're never free until that's our posture. We're not going to be allowed to be God of our lives, ever. It's a facade if we think that we are. We will never be allowed to be that. But guess what? God invites us to the privilege of being able to serve Him. And it's a great privilege. And this brings me to my fourth point, repentance. Repentance is the need to unload the burden. We don't need to lean on any props. I mean, I don't know if Jacob ever commanded Joseph to forgive his brothers, but I'm inclined to say that this was a prop. Calvin's words, frivolous invention. That's my personal position on this. This is a frivolous invention. It's a prop. They didn't need to do it. They didn't need to send that message. They could have went to Joseph themselves face to face and had the talk and said, you know, we're feeling insecure. So sorry, Joseph. I know it's an assault on all the good you've done to us, but we're just feeling so insecure. This wouldn't have went better. I think, it's a, I think it's a frivolous prop, but we're so prone to these, aren't we? We're so prone to these little inventions and these props and, and these kinds of things. And, but the fact is, the burden, repentance is the only cure for this burden. It's the only cure for this burden. Ask anybody who's been there. Ask anybody who's been there. They'll tell you. There's no healing until you've repented. Sitting around, collecting money from counselees, for 10 or 15 or 20 years telling guilty parties that they just need to feel good about themselves is thievery. It's theft. They're never going to feel good about themselves until they repent. (laughs) Without repentance, there's no healing. As the church, we should shout this from the housetops. You can't get healed without repentance. Repentance is not simply apologizing. It's not excuse making. It's coming before the Lord, admitting I've sinned against you, I've dishonored you, I've grieved you, and I have every intention of turning from this behavior with the strength that you give me this point forward. That's repentance. That's repentance. I no longer want to live for myself. I want to live for you. I no longer want to live for my glory. I want to live for your glory. Repentance is a 180-degree turn from a world-oriented life to a Christ-oriented life. Or we could put it this way. It's a 180-degree turn from a self-oriented life to a Christ-oriented life. That's repentance. Can't do that on our own. We can only do that in the strength that God gives us, but His arms are out wide. His invitation is clear. Come to me, all you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I'll give you everything that you need to turn. I'll be with you every step of the way. Fifthly, a guilty conscience often lowers the character of those around them. A guilty conscience. You ever notice that? When your conscience is guilty, you ever notice what you do to everybody around you? Now, our personalities are going to vary a little bit in this, so there'll be a different degree of this, given our personalities. We have a tendency to lower everybody around us when we're feeling guilty about stuff. The brothers are feeling guilty. And what do they do? They lower the character of Joseph. I mean, basically, what are they saying? They're saying, that, they're saying that Joseph is acting like Esau. Joseph, Joseph's going to be just like old Uncle Esau. 
You know, you remember the story when, when Jacob pulled that fast one? It was a really miserable stunt that Jacob pulled on me. So I did it twice. He, you know, swindled him out of his birthright and then swindled him out of that blessing lying that he was, that he was Esau and getting the blessing from his father. What did Esau, what was Esau determined to do to, to, to Jacob? He was determined to kill him, wasn't he? But, but he said, not while my dad is alive. You see, they're, they're, they're in essence accusing Joseph of being like Esau. Guilt cuts so deep. It twists us into behaving like animals. It twists us into behaving like children. And it offer, often lowers our opinions of those who are around us, as we see in this story. There's so much more. I'm going to just leave you with that. I mean, with wounds so deep as ours, how would... How will we ever be healed? Guilt has cut us so deep. How can we ever be healed? Praise be to God for Christ. Praise be to God for Christ. Who could ever imagine that a cross would be such a healing instrument? Who could ever imagine that a cross could be such a healing instrument? When there's a Savior hanging on it. When there's a Savior hanging on it. That's what it is. Guilt is so deep that Jesus had to die a wretched death, the most wretched death of all. Jesus had to die experiencing the very wrath of God in our place. But that's what he did. And he did it for you and he did it for me. And Jesus is the only one who truly understands how deeply we've been cut, how wretched of a condition our guilt has left us in. Jesus is the only Savior who can save us. But this he has done for everyone who puts their trust and faith in him. Heavenly Father, we so thank you for the great salvation that we have in you, that you can take such twisted material. Father, our condition and unbelief is so wretched. It's beyond our comprehension. But, oh, Father, you, you have sent the Son who has come in Christ Jesus and taken our place on the cross and has died where we belong and endured that agony for us in our stead. Oh, Lord, we so thank you that that is the only remedy for our sin. Oh, Father, we pray that you will cause your church to speak and communicate these truths. Quit beating around the bush and plainly teach these truths. Oh, Father, we pray that you will open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to receive these things as a culture. Oh, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.